So it is uh, my privilege today to introduce to you our guest speaker, Dr. Bill Kuhn. Bill is the Vice President of Student Development and also the campus chaplain at uh, Crown College, means he is the pastor for the campus. There he pastors the students, the faculty, the staff. Um, he is a, uh, he's a friend of mine, he's a friend of Christ Communities. I'm really glad that we get to uh, have him here this weekend. Um, Bill is married to Ginger. They have four kids, they have a dog, they have a motorcycle, and Bill has seven guitars, which we know he will show you pictures of if you ask him. So would you guys please join me in welcoming to our stage my friend, Dr. Bill Kuhn. Thank you, my friend, glad you're here. So yeah, that is all true, I do have seven guitars. Let me just show you here real quick. Can you see Can you see that? Let me show you real, right? I was showing some other people earlier, so might as well show you. If you're a guitar person and you wanna talk guitars afterwards, let me know, okay? So it's so good to be back. Great to be in Rochester. You know, drove down today. It's a beautiful day. Good opportunity for us to gather. I don't know. I always wanna think through what do we expect in these moments, and I hope that today... Uh, you have come here because you want to hear something from God, right? We want God to say something. And we know that when we open up the Bible, God wants to speak to us. So that's what we're going to do today. Let me pray for us and then we'll begin. Father, thank you once again for that timeless message about being children of God. Pray that today as we reflect on your word, that you would apply this message to us in a special way and that you might point out some things to us with a gentle finger in a place in our lives where we might need to change to be more like Jesus. Would you help us do that today? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want you to know that I do not think that I am a threatening person. But I had one occasion to question that. When I became someone else's scary person. I was in London a few years ago with my daughter. We had spent the day going to all the sights and sounds of London. It was a fast-paced day. We were trying to cram everything we could into one day in that special city. As we got to the end of the day, it was time for us to go back to our location, and so we were gonna get on the subway. They refer to it as the tube in London. So where we were, my daughter and I, our feet were achy, our bodies were tired, we were a little sweaty from a long day, and we got on the tube. And as I got on the tube, I sat down next to a middle-aged lady who was busy with her novel. And I had no longer sat down than she had turned to me and gave me this icy stare. Apparently, I had disrupted her evening commute. So as the tube happens, it moves along, and we got to the next exit. I'm sitting calmly in my seat. My daughter's sitting next to me. Icy stare ladies over here. She gets up at the next exit, and she exits the subway, right? So she gets off of the the train, and I'm still sitting there, and I'm thinking, okay, well, good, this was her stop, and so I sit there, and then the, the, we begin to move again, and off we go, and 
as we go, I look back through the train cars and seated in the other car was the middle-aged icy stare lady. She had simply gotten off to avoid me. Have you had that moment? Have you been someone's scary person? <laughs> it's interesting, right? The people that we want to sit next to us and the people that we don't want to sit next to us. I am assuming right now you're sitting next to someone you want to sit next to. If you don't, I give you the permission. <laughs> Some of you moved. You, you elbow. Pastor Daryl, we're going to have to deal with, I mean, they're elbowing. Okay. But let's be honest. We all have people we like to have next to us on the bench. And then there are other people. You know, we are told that when we walk in a room, our eyes scan the faces in search for two things. We're in search for familiar faces. And if we find no familiar faces, we look for friendly faces. So we pick and choose those familiar and friendly faces to sit next to us. If you're not one of those persons who's familiar and friendly, well, we might find another seat for them. And throughout the ages, the people of God have been known to protect the bench. Don't let people in that don't look like us that don't behave the way we behave. Their vocabulary is different. And if they were to sit next to us, we might give them a swift boot right out of the church. I've been around churches long enough to hear the arguments over the color of the carpet. I was in one church where we had a very serious elder meeting one night about the temperature in the sanctuary. <laughs> it wasn't as funny that night as it is here tonight. And by the way, could you turn it up a little bit? <laughs> I had someone say to me as I walked in the back door of a worship service one time, he said, now, said, you know you need to sit up front. That's where the anointing is. <laughs> in churches, the people in the back row have contempt for those up front. Who do they think they are sitting up front like that? All righteous and everything, pious people in the front row. And the people in the front row look to the back. Not now. But they look to the back and they think to themselves, look at those heathens in the back. <laughs> back row. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. Look where your pastor is. <laughs> hey, look, this is my last time here anyway now, so. <laughs> I just, 
but we figure out, don't we, who belongs on the bench next to us. And even within the church, even within the church, we can show contempt to one another. We can move people down. Hey, this is my bench. It's my seat. Strange, isn't it? To think that Jesus said that they will know that we are his disciples by our love, and yet sometimes the church is the most unloving place. I was in a setting a few weeks ago in which it may have been said, you will know, Jesus rephrased his line for today, you will know you are my disciples by your vaccine conviction." Friends, Jesus said the workers are few. How sad that we're kicking some of the workers out when we need them on the bench. So when we're talking about life on the bench, we're not talking about my basketball career. (laughs) But we are talking about how we interact with people. How we interact with people that are different than us. And there is a biblical remedy for some of this fracturedness in the church. And it's found in the very first chapter of the book of the Bible. Should be easy for us to find. Genesis chapter 1 is a place where God talks to himself in this chapter. So you're not alone if you talk to yourself. Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, open it with me because I think you'll see some interesting pieces. Now, we live in a visual medium world, the visual arts, not the literary arts. Our world tends to be dominated by images, symbols, moving pictures. And so when we get the privilege of watching a movie or a television program, if we miss something, we simply rewind it. Or we fast forward it. In the literary world, they didn't have that privilege. So they used other means to communicate a story that's moving quickly and to communicate where the climax of the story is. And often we've missed this in the Genesis chapter 1 account. So Genesis chapter 1 We're familiar with this passage. This is the passage of God creating the universe. And it opens with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over. And then if you get to verse 3, you see the word and. I have the New International Version. Other translations may have it a little differently and it may be missed. But the word and opens verse 3. And what you can see on the screen, I know it's small and you're not going to see it all, but what I have done in this uh, slide is I have highlighted in yellow all the ands that begin sentences. All the way through verse 25. There are over 20 ands in verses 1 through 25 that begin sentences. And this happened. And it was so. And there was evening and morning the first day. 
The author is telling us something. He's wanting to move the reader along to the climax of the story. He's, it's like he's pushing fast forward through the story. This is an ancient literary technique called a polysyneton, where you use the conjunction and to move the story along. And as a listener, remember most of the ancient world couldn't read, and even if they could, they didn't have the document. They were listening to it, and they were hearing all those ands race by through the chapter. And then the chapter and language changes. Verse 26. After many ands, verse 26 says, And then God said, let us make mankind in our image. Notice that verse 26 begins with the word then, not and. That's the signal. This is the climax. This is the apex of the story. This is where we are to slow down the story, where the story's been on fast forward up to this point. Now we settle in, because here is what is important. And now another literary technique is brought into the story. That is the issue of repetition. Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over the, the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. God is talking to himself, let us do this. In verse 27, verse 27 doesn't begin with the word and, it begins with the word so. Again, he's slowing the story down so we get it. So God created mankind, what? In his image. Now he's gonna say it again. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Notice the repetition in the text. Humans are made in the image of God. Now, if you read through that passage, you understand that other creatures are made in their, their own image, but humanity is made in the image of God. There's something different when God comes to creating male and female than creating all the other elements of the universe. God created male and female in his image, in his likeness. What does that mean? <laughs> you ever asked yourself that question? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Now, throughout church history, there have been a variety of interpretations of this particular theology. Some have suggested that humanity is created literally in the physical image of God, that we resemble God in our physical body. Now, that has not been a prominent position throughout church history. Very few have held to that position. Currently, the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons, holds that position. Some have suggested that the image of God relates to our ability to communicate, that God is communicating to himself, right? The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us and we have the ability to communicate, unlike the other animals in the world, right? 
Maybe that's part of it. Some have suggested it's morality, that we know right from wrong. Other creatures don't. We do. That's what it is. Some have suggested that it's our ability to think. Humanity is, has rationality, unlike other creatures. After all, we are homo sapiens, thinking beings. Maybe it has to do with the fact that we can procreate. I mean, after all, the chapter is about God creating, and then he tells male and female to procreate, fill the earth. Later, he says, have dominion over the earth. So maybe it's a functional image. That is that we have rulership like God has rulership. We have rulership, lowercase r. Maybe that's what it is. Hmm, I don't know. What I can tell you today is that there are no correlational variables outlined in the Bible that tell us what the image is. We'll return to that in a moment. So what happens in the rest of the story? Genesis chapter 1, created in the image of God. Genesis chapter 2 course, is a little bit more focused on the creation of Adam and Eve. We go to chapter 3, and there's the fall humanity, the sin, the, what has been called the foul revolt, the rebellion against the holy God, the creator. In chapter 3, well, maybe, maybe after the fall, maybe because of sin, humanity no longer bears the image of God. Maybe that's been removed. Genesis chapter four is this battle of the brothers and Cain kills Abel. That's how bad sin is, that even brothers are killing each other. But look at chapter five, verse one with me, because here is a recapitulation of this idea. Chapter five, verse one. This is written account of Adam's family line. Notice now the language. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when, he, when uh, they were created. Verse 3, when Adam had lived 130 years, he had a son in his likeness, in his own image. So whatever the image is, it doesn't go away just because humanity had sinned continue in the Bible, chapter six, we get the Noah and the flood and the ark, and you know that story well. And if you continue to fan over in chapter nine, God is giving Adam and his family, he's giving them instructions. Now that they're exiting the ark, how are they to behave? Notice verse six. Here's one of the warnings. Whoever sheds human blood by humans Shall their blood be shed? For in the image of God has God made mankind. Even after the wickedness of the earth, so wicked that God would destroy humanity except for this one family, even after all of that, there lies within every human being a stamp or a mark of the image of God. We go over to the New Testament, we find similar language in several places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Colossians, Ephesians 4. 
In James chapter 3, though, there is another line about the image of God in humanity. Here, James is warning about the use of tongue and the way that we speak and treat each other. And in verse 9, he says this. With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. That's what we did today when we were singing, right? And with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Both in Genesis chapter 9 and in James chapter 3 verse 9, there's a stern warning about how we treat each other because every person bears the image of God. In Latin, it is referred to as imago Dei, image God, imago Dei. Well, while we don't know what it means, we don't have, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it is. It does say these three things, I believe, we can infer from the text. Number one, the image of God is intrinsic in every human being. Every human being, regardless of geography or ethnicity, whether you're bald or shaggy, tall or short, or you're sing or you're silent, whether you are born or unborn, vaccinated or unvaccinated, masked or unmasked, Sitting in the front of the church or the back of the church, everybody has the image of God. Number two, there are not levels of the image of God. And this is the primary reason why I think God did not tell us a definition of the image of God. Because he knew us too well. He knew that if we said that the image of God meant intelligence, then what we would do is we'd take all the intelligent people and we'd say, look, they have more of the image of God and we need to treat them differently. You, however, have less of the image of God. We should treat you with contempt. But instead, God removes the definition for the moment and says, you know what? Everybody intrinsically has the image of God, and therefore, there's no degrees, there's no levels. It's not like the beautiful have a double portion, the talented have an extra dose, or the strong seem to have a special prize associated with their strength. Everybody has it. And there are no levels. Thirdly, Permanent. This is important today. <coughs> it means this. It means that nothing done to you can ever take away your unshakable dignity as a bearer of the image of God. Let me say it again. Nothing done to you can take away the image of God. Likewise, nothing we do can disqualify us 
for bearing his image. It's permanent. And even though it's permanent, we sometimes forget it. Peggy forgot it. When I was a young pastor, I got a call out of the blue one day from this lady crying on the other end of the phone, hard to understand. She said, I I need to meet with the pastor. Is there any chance you and I could connect? And so we met up at a Hardy's restaurant. And I sat with this middle-aged woman, dark hair. Her mascara had run down her cheeks. She was crying, not just crying, but you know, that kind of like, I don't have any control anymore, sobbing kind of crying. There was deep weeping. And as she told me her story, she told me how for years she had been neglected in the home, ignored by her parents. She found a husband who neglected her. While he'd never physically abused her, verbally, he was aggressive. And here sat a woman bearing the image of God who no longer believed she had any value in the world. How about you? Have you forgotten that you bear the image of God? Have you forgotten that you have value regardless of what has been done to you, regardless of what you have done? You bear the eternal stamp that says you are important in this world. Now listen, every person has scars from their family of origin. And I'm not saying that to make light of the gravity of pain. Some of us in the room have legitimate reasons for hurt. But I challenge us to not live as if that hurt is the only thing that defines us. There is something else that defines us. Something else that is eternal, that unites us as people. That is the image of God. Some people have felt kicked to the curb time and time and time again. Forgotten, lonely, ignored, neglected, And today is the day when your value is reinforced, not because I said so, but because God says so. You have value and purpose and meaning because you bear the image of God. And as such, no one should rob or take away your dignity with their words or actions. They can't do that. That's about us. There's a whole lot of people in the world that would love to come and sit on our bench with us. Have we made room for others on the bench? You know, it's interesting. If I could say it this way, it sounds a little bit like I'm quoting Captain America from MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. 
But can we just acknowledge this reality? That what unites us is greater than what divides us. What unites us is greater than what divides us. What divides us is where we sit in the church and the color of the carpet and the temperature in the room. What unites us is that we bear the image of God. We bear the image of God. What unites us is greater than what divides us. And I think Jesus got that. You know, Jesus was seemingly always challenging the societal norms of his day. Confronting the way people interacted. You remember in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. His disciples are shocked that he would talk to a Samaritan woman. How about the time when there's a woman caught in adultery and the Torah would say that that person needs to be stoned to death and Jesus, with just a few words, causes the stones to drop and the woman is told to go and sin no more. Or how about when Jesus confronts people with the parable in Matthew 25 when he says, what you do to the least of these you do to me. If that's true, friends, we don't go to take Jesus to the poor or the imprisoned or the hungry. We go to meet Jesus when we go to them because they bear the image of God. Sometimes when I read the New Testament, I read the Gospels about Jesus, I just realize how different his life is than mine. And I think, what is it? Is it that he did things that I don't do? I mean, Jesus was with the prostitutes and the drunkards. Do you remember that scene or, or scenes? Because it happened more than once. I don't do the things that Jesus does. I, I don't say the things that Jesus says. But I want you to know, I don't think that's where the difference lies. It may manifest in that way, but here's where the difference lies. And this is deeply convicting for me. I simply do not see the way Jesus sees. Jesus' vision of people determined his mission. Jesus' vision of people determined his mission with people. He saw image bearers, and he loved them, and he welcomed them to the bench. For us, don't always welcome people to the bench. Sociologists tell us why, by the way. It works kind of like this. If you think about it, it seems like there may be some truth in this. We kind of gather around people that behave like us. And then we call those behaviors normal. This is normal. 
This is normalized behavior. Once we say it's normal to behave like this, then we put a value statement on it. This behavior is right, and that behavior is wrong. My behavior is right. Their behavior is wrong. And so we mm, inch people off the bench because they're not behaving the way my group behaves. There's a word for this. It's called outgroup homogeneity. Outgroup homogeneity. Don't write it down because I can't spell it. Here's what it means. We are all different and they are all the same. We are all different. We see how unique we are, how special we are. But everybody else, they're the same and we dismiss them because they don't live up to our norms. You say, are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about it because every time I hear my kids' music, it's all the same. But when I listen to my music, the good music from the 1980s, rich with guitar, mm, so good. But when my kids listen to my music, guess what they say? Dad, that's all the same. See, what we're familiar with seems different, unique. But what we don't know all sounds the same. So all the people that are different than us, ah, they're all the same. Ah, they all do that. Kick them off the bench, and they don't behave right. And we dismiss them. Where Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, come to me. I'll give you rest. Because Jesus' vision of, the, of people determined his mission with people. C.S. Lewis was asked to preach a sermon. The sermon became a treatise known as the weight of glory. The weight of glory. And at the close of this essay, C.S. Lewis says this, quote, there are no mere mortals. He continues. Next to holy sacrament, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Why? Because our neighbor bears the image of God. I love being in beauty and nature. I love being surrounded of it, but it doesn't bear the image of God. What would it be like for an army of people at Christ Community Church to enter Rochester with a vision of people that determines their mission with people and says, oh my goodness, we are in the land of holy people. We are in the land, there is no mere mortals at work, in our neighborhood, in our family. 
because these people bear the image of God. So I appeal to you to rework the way you view people, to be like Jesus and see people as image bearers, and then to love them and extend a very simple invitation for them to come and sit at the bench. Will you pray with me? Father, I just want to confess, I don't see people the way you see people. I don't look at people the way you look at people. Jesus, I fall short. Would you forgive me? Would you help me? Give me your eyes to understand there are no mere mortals, that we live among people who bear the image of God. And because of that, we owe value and respect to people different than us. And not just to Christians, but to those who are outside of the family of God, to respect and care for them too. In a way that acknowledges every person bears the image of God. And would you remind us, some in the room, who through years of hurt and pain and suffering and struggle have forgotten that they are image bearers, would you remind them of that deep today? Press it in, Lord, by your spirit. Make us people that value others as you do. In Jesus' name, amen.